Welcome back to New Books in Hindu Studies. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balfour. Today, I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Archana Venkateshan of UC Davis on an exciting translation of an ancient Tamil poem. Uh, Archana, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, endless song, as listeners will see um, on this podcast. Uh, what is it a translation of? So the translation uh, is the um, of the uh, late eighth or ninth century uh, poem by the great Tamil mystic and poet uh, Namarbar. He was a Vaishnava poet, and he composed four poems, uh, of which this is the crown jewel, um, if you will. It's eleven hundred and two verses long, and it is called the Tiruvaimuri, which literally means the sacred. Uh, utterance or the sacred truth. Uh, it's translated as endless song, uh, partly um, as a metaphor that the song, the, the, the song, the topic of which is uh, the yearning for union with Vishnu is a sort of eternal endless quest. But it's also referring to the actual format of the poem, which is in this very unique, um, it's a, a unique uh form called the uh, andadi where every last syllable is linked to the um, following verses next syllable so it's done through homonyms uh, using words sometimes just the syllable um, so in effect the first word of the poem which is uyar hi is also the poem's last word uyar so it essentially forms a kind of garland so the poem is endless in the sense so the Title of the English title of the poem uh, of the translation "Endless Song" is kind of a reference to both of those aspects. I will certainly, hopefully, get a taste for this exquisite uh, Tamil poetry in your uh, your fantastic uh, English translation. There's so much to be said about what can and can't be translated. Tell us a little bit more about the world behind the text, uh, in terms of the context that we know of giving rise to this work. And then maybe you can tell us a little bit about the world in front of the text in terms of how it's used today. So the um, that's a wonderful way to kind of actually think about this this text because uh, we don't know very much historically about the poet. Um, he refers to himself in the po- in the poems in these kalashrutis, these last concluding uh, verses, which is um, so the structure of the poem is that they are, it's sort of like, an, almost like inception, it's or like a Russian doll, one something within something within something else, which is also that endless quality of the poem. So the poem um, has sets of um, 10 or 11 verses, where the 11th verse is always the Palashrutis. Those sets of 10 are themselves set into sets of 100, um, and there are 10 such books, which is what gives us the 1100 um, count. So in each of these Palashruti verses, um, the poet refers to himself. Uh, and this is where we get whatever little bit uh, of biographical historical information about him. So we know from these uh, Palashrutis that he, uh, his name was Shatakopan. Um, he go, has a title, Maran, uh, so he sometimes refers to himself as Maran Shatakopan, um, which is a reference to it, um, a title uh, associated with the Pandya kings, because it's a, something that the Pandya kings use. So we know that he probably had some kind of a relationship to um, uh, to the kings um, of that of that area. He was from the very, very deep south of India. And today it's associated uh, with um, the town of Arvarkaranagari, which is in Tirunelveli, Tutukuri district in Tirunelveli area. And uh, he refers to this town and he praises it in his poems as a very wealthy, uh, prosperous town filled with virtuous Brahmins and virtuous people. Um, who maintain the Vedic fires and so on and so forth. So this is a, this is the information we get from the poem that is historical. Uh, but the poem gives us other kinds of information. For instance, we know that he uh, must he's an extraordinary poet. Um, so he's one of these poets that comes once in a you know once in a blue moon, just incredibly talented with a wonderful sense of sound and rhythm and language. Um, the language is is, is simple, but 
the simplicity, it's sort of like the Hemingway simplicity. There is such depth and texture uh, to the simplicity of the words. Um, in addition, uh, we know that he uh, was also extremely erudite. It, uh, the, the, the poems are deeply philosophical, mystical um, as well, and they are also poems uh, inflected. So he knew the um, there are full of references to Sanskrit texts and mytho- mythological references and so forth. So he is somebody who is clearly very, very well educated, uh, both in terms of um, his command over the literary techniques, uh, in terms of his ability to innovate and experiment, um, as well as um, just in terms of the theologic, theological sort of grasp um, and his ability to then translate that theology into a poetry that's very deeply felt and, and moving. Uh, so the poem is part of this. Um, so it eventually becomes incorporated into this canon of 4,000 verses called the Nihilite of the Vipravandam, which is equivalent to the Tamil Veda. Specifically, the Travaimuri is uh, given the status of the, of the Veda and it's referred to as the Dravida Veda or the Southern Veda. And it comes to be incorporated probably beginning um, soon after his lifetime, probably starting around the 10th or 11th century, and almost immediately comes to uh, be revered by the nascent Sri Vaishnava community. And so you begin to see lots and lots of commentaries about the poem, uh, trying to uh, w- trying to uh, get some sense and some handle on how to read uh, this poem. Uh, it continues to be, it's a very, very important poem to the Sri Vaishnavas. In fact, there is a uh, annual festival of recitation that takes place every December. Uh, that's 11 days uh, or 10 days. Uh, some have an 11th day, some temples have an 11th day, uh, where it, which is devoted to the recitation of this text. Um, uh, it always takes place um, in the month of uh, Marguerite, which um, is the end of uh, December, January. Uh, and so, uh, so it's 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 a text that has a has a wonderful and continuing life, and is profoundly relevant to, uh, particularly to the religious life of of Sri Vaishnavas. So, yeah, there's so many uh, points of entry there. Um, the idea that this poem is clearly the the, the it's clearly the product of, of of nothing short of of, of genius. Yeah. But this this individual. What little we know about him biographically, uh, certain eclipsed by the much we know about him in terms of his ability, by virtue of his grasp, his command, not only of these these esoteric and theological concepts, but also there is this sort of vibrancy of feeling, and then on top of that, there is this extraordinary ability to to mirror uh, to, to to marry his feeling with his insight into language. Yeah. And, these are these are various modes of human enterprise where we would be so blessed to have a fraction of, of any of these traits. And clearly this, you know, he was a Shakespeare of his time and space. Yes, definitely. Um, I would say that. And so um, also the structure, it's, 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 you know, I look at narrative texts, right? Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 it's dawning on me more and more that there's there's great meaning embedded in the structure in terms of exegesis or reception. Right. And it, one of the things I look at is sort of, you know, ring composition, where uh, a narrative sort of ends where it begins. And this poem seems to be, um, in some ways, a ring composition in terms of coming full circle. I mean, are there... Uh, would you say of these 10 sections, uh, how are they arranged, if any, or is there any pattern in terms of how they, they arise? Okay, so this is the interesting thing about the poem, right? So the exegesis, the commentarial tradition, reads the poem as a journey, a kind of linear journey where there's a of, of separation and then union to, to God. Like it's, it's, it's seen as a biogra- an autobiographical record of the poet's journey uh, where he has moments of union and moments of separation and then the poem ends uh, in this remarkable um, uh, way in the in the um, tenth book so that's um, decades 10-9 and 10-10 in which in 10-9 he describes this ascent to Vaikuntha 
where he sort of imagines not himself ascending to Vaikuntha, but he imagines what that would look like, like all the gods are there and people are in the apsaras are there and people are sprinkling water and it ends with an audience. And you can sort of imagine a kind of almost early medieval court uh, where um, Vishnu is um, in, in state with uh, Sri, because of course in the Sri Vaishnava tradition, uh, they're inseparable, right? She is so crucial as a mediator um, towards uh, the, the goal of salvation. So she's there and the poem sort of, so this is a penultimate um, decade of the poem. And then in the final decade of the poem, that's the 10th, um, the 10th hundred, um, she, uh, he describes, the poem ends with this marvelous and extraordinary description of, of, of being and actually it's a place where it sort of grammar breaks down almost where he talks about like being like iron in water and so you there's a sense of you don't know who's absorbing the water so who's god and who's the poet like who's absorbing who's eating who and it ends with him talking about god um enveloping him like completely surrounding him and it's this this engulfing and engulfing and engulfing I'm surrounding and surrounding that and then surrounding that and surrounding that and then you finally cut even the desire that I have for you and completely take me over so the the tradition reads this as a kind of linear uh linear narrative right but the poem itself resists it because it has a circular and cyclical quality not only because of the andadi where each poem is linked to the other and the poem ends by taking us back to the beginning. So in some, some ways, the structure of the poem is both reflective of God's nature, which has neither beginning nor end, um, the nature of the quest itself, which has neither beginning nor end. It is itself an endless quest, as well as the nature of samsara, which is also endless, right? So all of that is bound in the structure of the poem. And so it's in some ways to... For me personally, I've always found that you have to read a text like this, which is so revered and treasured and has really been nurtured by the Sri Vaishnava uh, community over a very, very long uh, period. You have to take them seriously and you have to read the commentaries alongside um, the poems. But at the same time, as a scholar, um, as a translator, for me, there is also a personal independent relationship that I have with the text where I think it's quite possible to read the text in a different way. So in some ways, you can read, and I think you're meant to read each of the, you know, 10 sets, um, that is the verses that are, you know, the uh, thematically united uh, sets of 10 verses with the Phalashruti uh, independently. They stand alone. Um, so for instance, you will have one set of 10 verses on the site of Sri Rangam, for instance, or when one set of uh, 10 verses on the site of Tirukurunguri, or you'll have a set of verses in the mother's voice wondering about her girl who has wandered off. Um, you might have a set in the voice of the heroine you might have. So, so they, they're, they're thematically um, independent and they stand alone, as well as each set of 100 verses are united by a theme which the Acharyas have identified. So, for instance, the first um, 100 might be seen as describing the nature of God. Um, second 100 may be um, uh, described as what is the nature of, of the way and the path and so on and so forth. So, so there is a kind of the first 100 does this, the second 100 does this, the third 100 does this, and the fourth 100 does this. So there is a way also to read uh, the, each 10 separately each hundred separately, and then reading the poem also um, as, a, as a unit. But the third possibility, and to me the most exciting for us, particularly if you're looking at this as a scholar of literature and of somebody um, who's interested in poetry, is that the, the structure of the poem, right, this, this andadi, uh, the cyclical and circular nature of the poem, allows you to enter the poem at any point and end it at any so that means you. it basically allows endless possibilities for how you can rearrange the poem, right? Say you start at a poem um, where you, you begin at sort of the, for instance, if you read the poem backwards, you get a very different experience than if you were to, or reading it from the midpoint on to the end point. 
gives you a very different experience. So I think one of the wonders of the poem is the what the flexibility of its very structure, the possibilities that it gives us as readers that we can enter. From, so you don't in some ways need to read it from start to finish. Um, like a novel. Um, you can read it anywhere and any verse or even any decad stands on its own and is rich and wonderful uh, for that reason. And it seems that, that um, this, this sort of uh, ornately kaleidoscopic structure, uh, it both it mirrors, you know, the, the beauty and the texture, the depth of the divine that it's talking about. So it's mm -hmm. sort of this synergy of content and form. And what I'm what I'm hearing um, what I'm hearing you articulate it, is that it also mirrors uh, uh, the, uh, the multitude of paths and experiences towards that divine, such that one one can engage, one can arrive at the ocean, starting from various uh, uh, you know points of yeah. departure. Yeah, indeed. In fact, there's a very famous verse that's at the very beginning of the Tirvaimari. It's 115, in which he precisely, he says precisely this. He says it in different ways in other parts of the poem as well. But this is a particularly famous one. Um, and it comes right after the verse that's been made very, very famous by Ike Ramanujan. So Namarvar is mostly known to people through Raman's translation, Hymns for the Drowning. And this is the this particular verse that I'm alluding to is the one in which um, he uh, Raman calls it the paradigm. It's the nam avaniva nuva navaniva uvaniva. You know the one where he talks about this man and that man and the other in between. That very famous verse. So right after this verse where he says the nam avaniva uvaniva avar ivan uvaryavar nam avar ivar uvar aduvedu udu yedu. So he's just basically playing here with, it's just a recitation of pronouns, but it's beautifully done. Uh, so the one who stands there, who is becoming everything. Now he has the verse that follows right after that is a verse in which he just says that everybody has their path. Everybody has their own path. Anybody, they, each person has their own God um, and they reach the feet of that God. Um, there is no God who is less. So he says, So there's no God who is less. Whatever the faded way that each person has will be the one that reaches you to this God. So this is a very famous word, verse in 115 that opens the um, the Thiravimari. So, um, so in some ways, the poem is exemplary uh, and exemplifies that, that principle. Now, this is not to say, I mean, it's a very clearly Vaishnava text. There is no question the poem is not advocating for some kind of very ecumenical sort of like, you know, it's, it, it has these moments where it says that, you know, all parts, but it's ultimately all parts lead to, him and that him is very clearly Vishnu. And there are all of these moments in the poem where he's subordinating Shiva or the other deities. And there are, uh, for instance, the uh, the section uh, in the, that ends the 400 on, um, on that's in praise of his own hometown, Kurukur, uh, is one of the most polemical of the, of the Thiruvayamari, where he basically disses and says, all other parts are just wrong. And I can't believe anybody would be following any other parts when you have the possibility of uh, following uh, Vishnu. So it, it's a poem that, you know, you, you can certainly um, bracket out these moments that seem to be speak to us in our sort of more liberal minded um, and open minded. He can certainly do that. Uh, but at the same time, there are also other moments in the text where, where it's very clear that he has a has a specific agenda, and that agenda is and he's very much rooted in a in a Vaishnava uh, worldview. So yeah, and it even seems to add credence add credence um, to the notion that the poem is aiming to be as all encapsulating as the divine is talking about. It includes these various perspectives within a 
within a, within an ultimately stringently Vaishnava theological bent or, or devotion to a very uh, very uh, clear uh, face of the divine is nevertheless the beauty of, of, of narrative and of poetry especially is is I feel um, a number of things not least of which is its penchant for for preserving paradox and for, mm -hmm. for sort of you know uh, a not a and, and hold that without worrying about non-contradiction um, the other thing that's glorious about um, poetry is that um, unlike prose where you can get the sense um, from for example your, your your iPad you don't need lungs to utter prose but you need lungs to utter poetry you need the, the poetry demands an embodied experience of utterance and hearing mm -hmm. and, and so I would love for you to to uh, read uh, just recite a verse uh, in the Tamil and perhaps also your translation, even 115 if you like, or some other that speaks to you, just to give sometimes an... Um, let me see. Oh my God, there's so many beautiful verses. Uh, th uh, <laughs> this is why I had intended to choose one, but I cannot uh, begin to. There are so because... many uh, beautiful verses. Um, what uh, first comes to mind? Oh, a verse... Okay. That's hard. Like you had, this is when the, I, I'll just read one. Actually, it's a very short verse. Um, it's just a couplet of uh, one of the few that is in couplet form. It's actually a brilliant verse. Um, and I'll, and it's actually a verse that was very, very hard to translate as well. And um, this comes in the second dec decade, I'm um, sorry, the first hundred second decade. Uh, and in which he's talking about, so in the first, so in the poem, you don't get, in the, when the poem opens, you do not get the identity of Vishnu uh, until the very end of the second decade. So he's only referred to as Avan or Avar, which is just he, right, in the third person, respective and non-respective forms. Um, so, you, so, you, so you get all of this description about the God without actually getting the name of the God. So that's so. So in the first, it's sort of the first verse, the op the first decade, it's sort of giving you a picture of the supreme God, the highest one who is worshipped by the immortals. Uh, and then in the second decade, that's one to one, uh, one to the, that is the first hundred second decade, uh, is the uh, he describes the path, right? How do you get to this God that he's described? So I just want to read out, and this is all in couplets, and it's in a kind of very folky um, meter. So, and he does this by just using this one word, vid, which means to leave, to let go. So he says, Vidamin mutravum vidisayid ummuyir, vidudai yanidai vidisayimindi. I'll just say that again. It's just a couplet. Vidamin mutravum vidim, sorry. Vidumin mutravum vid seid ummuyir, vidudai yanidai vid seidine. That's it. It's just such a beautiful verse, and the, you hear the word vida 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 over and over again. So vidumin mutravum, before the, you know, it's sort of the vida means to let go, to leave. So it's hard to translate this into English because in English it just is like before letting go something, let go something, 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 let go, let go and go to the person that owns letting go. That's literally what it sounds like in English. So when I did this, so I had to go through multiple versions of this particular verse. Partly I wanted to ensure that the translation kept the brevity of the verse. It was very important to me that, and I felt like the strength of the verse comes from the fact that it is so short and so uh, brief. Uh, it had to repeat the, um, the, there had to be repetition of the word. So in English, sometimes that can be very tinny. Uh, we don't like repetition like that in English, um, in English poetry. Uh, but I felt like that was very important that I had to choose a, a word that would do the, have the same affect um, uh, in English. I also decided after going through multiple drafts where I had um, split, the, split the lines in many, many different ways that it had to ultimately be a couplet as well. Uh, to reflect it. So the way it ended up in English is this. When you've let go everything, 
let your life go to him who owns all letting go. So you know, I use the word rather than use Vida, which I could have easily done moksha or something of that sort. I chose or release I could have done. I could have done release. I could have done um, a seizing. Uh, I could have, I, I tried actually uh, doing uh, homonyms like seize, seize um, as a way of kind of maybe doing wordplay. And that was just so, that was too precious. So ultimately, I went for a very simple uh, rendition, split into two lines. When you've got, when you've let go everything, let your life go to Him who owns all letting go. And I deliberately left it to be somewhat grammatically unclear as to what was going on. I also removed all punctuation, so you have to figure out as the reader or the reciter of where you want to pause in the poem, and so. I could have easily done when you've let go, comma, everything, comma, let your life, comma, go to him who owns all letting go. But I chose very deliberately to leave the everything dangle between the go and the let as a way of focusing our attention on that and making us as the reader understand what the relationship between each of those parts is. So that is one example of, of, of a verse that I personally struggled a lot with um, it took me weeks to get it um, to a place where I felt that it works, um, and it was I would say one of the few verses that I feel very happy about having finished. Like yes. when I look at that translation, even now after some months, there's nothing there that I would change. Like I I don't look at it and think there's a different way that I could have done this that it could have been better. For me, that is as good as I was going to get it. But that's not. Well, the- with many of the other verses. <laughs> of course, there's certainly a sense of accomplishment in that, you know, um, as a translator, you're translating much more than semantic meaning. Right. right. So you've already, I think, touched on this in, in, in sharing with us your journey with this one verse, but what is it that you hope to render from the poem into English? Obviously a sense of the meaning, but there's much, much more than that that you're doing, isn't there? Absolutely. For me, I, I'm. I love poetry. Um, for me, it's that like, is okay. evident from uh, any line you read from this, and we will touch on the tension between sort of uh, poetic and analytical modes of being and thinking. But I digress. Please return. You love poetry, yeah. and. So I really love poetry, and I think this is an incredible poem. I think it is one of the great, great poems of world literature, if you wouldn't want to use that very problematic category. I think it stands, um, it's an enormous achievement, literary achievement, and it's unfortunate that it's kind of pigeonholed as this, as this work of, of, you know, Sri Vaishnava literature, and that people feel like they have to have all this background to read the poem and to engage with it. But I think it's, it's a profound poem. I think it's, it's an incredibly beautiful poem. I think it's, it's to me, it is a deeply felt moving work of art. Um, so for me as a translator, the poetry always comes first. Yes. The theological stuff is important. And, but I wanted it to work as a poem. It needed for me, it had to work as a poem on its own. It had to be um, tangible as that. It had to be able, if somebody reading this with no background in um, Hinduism, no background in the Vaishnava tradition of the Tamil-speaking South, um, should still be able to read it and come away with something of the of the extraordinary quality of the poem. That was to me very, very important. So, um, so that was what was my that was what guided me, uh, which is why. Um, very often, I, I, you know, I would have multiple, multiple. I mean, this took about eleven years to finish, um, and I think that's still too short a time. Um, uh, uh, but I, for me, it was a question of just you just kind of have to listen to the to the sounds because you are not, you cannot. One of the things as a translator is, I think we often think about translation. Translation is always some kind of loss. Oh, I can't bring over the thumber into English. 
oh, um, I'm losing this aspect of the Tamara. But I, for me, uh, I, and I and certainly I, I inhabited that space um, and always felt the lack. Oh, no, like my, all the things that I could not do um, in English that the Tamara could do. But over time, I've trained myself to start thinking of a translation differently as a as as something that is a creative act in and of itself, um, that is something that is valuable in and of itself and not just a, some kind of facsimile, right? The poor kind of copy. Um, and I've also started to learn to see what is it, English and Tamil are as far apart as two languages can possibly be. And you can never bring over Tamil into English in the way that you want just as you can't bring English into Tamar. It's just not going to be possible. But you have to, I think the problem is when you try to do that. Um, rather for me, I have to look at what is it that English does well? What are the resources of English that I can harness to make a Tamil poem speak in English? Right? So, and English has wonderful, wonderful resources, such as I rhymes, slant rhymes, um, uh, or assonance, consonants, uh, alliteration that works beautifully. Uh, I think that that gives a certain kind of uh, that m- removes a bit of that artificiality. So that is kind of what I would look for. So usually the way I work is I will usually do a, a, a translation that's a very literal, like word for word, get all the you know the gra- grammar correct, correct, and um, and then as I move you know, through it, I, I like to go, I, my, my preferred style of translation, at least for this uh, poem, is something that is more economical, uh, because his style is very economical, it's very dense, uh, in terms of he's able to pack a lot um, in with just a very few words. Um, it's, as I said, simple, the summer is quite simple, he, he doesn't use very, um, you know, complex uh, or difficult words or something of that sort, but he, the simplicity hides um, a lot. Um, and so initially I would just work on that. And then over the over time, uh, I would just keep working on a single verse um, to get a particular kind of sound. Like I usually would look in the um, summer to see, like, what is the sound? Like in this verse that I read, for instance, Vidamin mutravum. It's got a very lots of hard consonants. Vidamin mutravum. Vidasei dumir. Vidurai yanide. Vidasei nene. It's got a lot of very hard consonant, but it ends with a with a long vowel. Vidamin ne. So for me, when I was working on this, I wanted to replicate that, which is why, and I wanted to replicate the doubling that you see in the summer. So that's why you get the letting go, the let, 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 let which brings you the same dental sound, the vudu, in the English. So that is so that became one way to do it. And it ends um, with go, with this long vowel. Um, I'm just trying to find the translation. So it also ends with a long vowel, go, just like say mine. So even though I didn't get the A sound, I was still able to get a vowel at the end, which was very important to me. Um, because it kind of is a, it's an open, it kind of gives that open quality that le- letting go is this release in it. It's the sound of the word is itself about the release that he's speaking of. So that's the kind of way that eventually I, I so it was very painstaking. <laughs> yes, yes, but there's something, um, there's something quite profound in the very process you engage in, in that, um, from what I can glean, it really bespeaks the enterprise of poetry. Yeah. Insofar as poetry is as much a, a vessel of, of ideas too vast to fit within your mind as it is an acoustic, embodied, uh, musical uh, experience. And so, you know, I don't know any Tamil. So when you recite a verse of a poem, my mind, my heart, my being is forced to engage with the acoustic sonic dimension. And there's so much to engage with. There's so much yeah. flavor. 
right? Especially for anyone who's remotely musical, there's so much to engage with. Yeah. And so it seems that you're able to register that, um, that, that dimension, right? Register the flavor. And then somewhere in the back of your brain, you're able to come up with what in English would render a proxy for that flavor for the listener mm-hmm. while also transplanting some sense of the meaning of the impact. Yes. Yes. So, so this, that, that is, that is, that is not to say the meaning is secondary, but just as for this poet, there too, the meaning and the poetry and the sound are not, they're intertwined. Just so that that too has to be the case uh, when we do the translation work that we do, that sometimes I find in translation, we place that semantic, the, 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 the emphasis so much on the semantic that getting that meaning, like the literal meaning out, that the poetry is just lost. And then we read it and we think, I can't, in English, and we think this person is a great poet, is really worth translating. And then we've really lost something. Uh, and so, in some ways, my hope in this translation was to give the reader a sense of how both of those things worked in concert. That meaning and poetry uh, and the sound and the rhythm and all of that are not, in fact, the, it's not that the latter is somehow subordinate to the former, but each is actually constitutive of the other. Um, it reminds me, it reminds me of that famous, uh, I believe, Kalidas verse talks about the extent to which um, sound and meaning are like Shiva and Parvati. Yeah. They're they're ultimately one. And and so, of course, the meaning is not secondary. The meaning is primary, like the the body or the clothing. The body is primary. Nevertheless, it's accentuated in a very different way. Yeah. You know, right? If you're going to, if you have a certain uh, lovely body in, just to use a metaphor, in a sari, Maybe there's no sorry in the West, but what garments might equate the sense? Certainly, a beautiful body in, in uh, you know, a nice pair of jeans and a t-shirt won't quite, yeah. won't won't quite, um, you know, translate um, the, the literally sensual dimension of mm-hmm. of that message. So, so, and and so. I don't know. There's there's so many threads. So I started uh, university studying English. Mm, studying comparative, <laughs> <laughs> studying comparative literature and a bit of philosophy, uh, a bit of history. Um, and after a couple of years, I went away and I worked in the private sector for a bit. And then I came back to study what was offered under religious studies. But really took me some time to realize, oh, I still study literature, but I study ancient Indian Sanskrit narrative texts that have, you know, a wealth of of, uh, philosophical insights. And so as a lover of literature, it's abundantly clear. Being ignorant of the Tamil, but possessing a love of literature, it's abundantly clear that there is a, 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 uh, a profound richness to this poet's command of language, yes. and all equally clear that you have painstakingly endeavored, and in my opinion, successfully, to translate the experience into English of mm-hmm. reading the Tamil. And you know, is it fair to say that that necessarily? Well, I don't know. I'll leave it open. I'll leave it open. I won't won't assert. Would you say how how tra- how much how much would you say is lost in translation? You know, what what is that like for you? Is it is it such that you can arrive at a verse that that you know goes a long way towards rendering the the, the experience of reading the Tamil, or would you say that uh, that's not really the case? I mean, as I said, you know, I've had to train myself. I don't know whether this is a psychological trick or water to make myself feel better. Uh, but because I translate a lot, I mean, I think of myself primarily as a translator. It's sort of like what I love to do um, because it allows me to live in, in two languages simultaneously. Um, and so I, you know, too, always, and I, and I say this 
in the introduction that I, you know, I, I, I too was trained to think of translation as failure, that as did you lose something, that, that there's always a lack. Uh, but I have, through actually working with this text um, for such a long time, when you live with something, so it's very frustrating because there are times when I just think, I just can't do this. I mean, this is just impossible. Uh, I've learned and I've taught myself to reorient my thinking that I don't think about what is lost in translation, but rather what is gained in English. What have I created in English? Um, I feel like these two texts live in relationship to each other, where one doesn't replace the other. The English is not meant to replace the the Tamar, but it serves as a kind of echo um, as a kind of um, as a kind of you know there's this uh, I think of it this way um, so the Sri Vaishnava commentators uh, refer to the process of commentary as the process of immersing yourself in anubhava right this enjoyment so the commentary is thought of as a text of enjoyment as an anubhava grantha so I think of translation in that same way. It is an anupavagantha. It is my. It is a commentary in a way. It is so it's independent of the text, but both rooted in the text as well. And it is a text that is my relish, my enjoyment, my experience of the text. Um, very much so. Um, I definitely. Uh, would say that the emotional investment that I've had in this work is unlike anything else um, to the degree that I started having very intense dreams as I finished the work. Like I was constantly imagining myself as living within the poem, uh, like literally the text of the poem. Uh, So it's it's a translation for me is not about lack, and it's not about what is lost, but as something that is that I have created, um, that is a kind of homage, a kind of uh, commentary, a kind of is what Walter Benjamin would refer to as an afterlife of the text. Um, it's it's just one more part of it, which adds to the legacy, um, the richness. Um, so I think of this text as having an endless river of Anubhava with each person who encounters it. And I'm just one more stream um, in that endless stream. So, yeah, I don't think of it as, as loss. Because if I do, then I, this, w- this would never have been finished. I would just be stuck on verse one. <laughs> oh, it's certainly a refreshing uh, perspective and probably useful uh, to various uh, creative types endeavoring to translate or write um, such that, um, you know, what is perfect under the sun really? And so yet uh, barring, <laughs> barring the absence of perfection, certainly one can achieve a great deal, irrespective. Right. And there, there, you know, there's so many different threads that are coming up. Terms of this podcast and, and what what hearers might be interested in, um, that I'm not even sure which one I want to follow. But I, I do want to say that there's an immersive quality. Sorry, just silence that. That that I want to say that um, the way in which the content of the poem is of a, a devotee immersing himself into the experience and the contemplation of the divine. Um, poetry itself, great poetry, great works, great literary works, they they demand that you immerse yourself into them and sort of partake in the transformation they afford. And so this, the extent to which the individual immerses themselves into the work, I think, is is encapsulated in this narrative motif of authors appearing in works themselves. 
you learn about the author from within the context of the work. Yeah. Think of the great Sanskrit epics where you have, you know, Vyasa is the author of the Mahabharata and he's also yeah. a character and he also, yeah. you know, has progeny in the text and he's, mm-hmm. he's crucial to the, to yeah. it's this, it's this interplay of sort of um, being, a, a, you know, a subject of the experience, right? But, and, and then immersing yourself into it. But it's clear, it's, it's evident to me anyhow, that you have immersed yourself into this work. You've gone down to the, to the you, you've sort of taken a, a deep dive and you've brought back or attempted to bring back some of what you've come up with or afforded a path whereby others can take a deep dive into this work. Um, is it fair to say you found this process transformative? Oh, absolutely. It's, there's no question um, that it was, it was transformative in so many ways. Trans- in what ways? Uh, transformative in how I, I mean, think about translation. Um, the slowness that it demanded of me, um, uh, it sort of, it, it made time feel, function very differently. A lot of the translation I did actually, because I'm doing a parallel project um, on the festival of recitation associated with this, with this poem, and it has run almost concurrently, uh, with, and it's still ongoing. So a lot of the time I would, and the, the festival takes place over many, many, many hours. Uh, and so I would have time that I would just be sitting around waiting for things to happen in a temple, and I would be sitting there either reading this poem or uh, translating. So I would say that a lot of the experience of being a part of the festival um, seeped in, like I heard the festival and the recitations that occur during the festival, and that that musicality of that, though the spectacular quality of the of the processions, uh, the the recitation of the devotees um, who were not part of the the official formal Brahmin men reciting the text, the women who recited the text on their their breath. Um, the the non brahmins who who recited them loudly to, to off to the side, um, people sort of uh, using the text as a way to talk about. Um, this would happen very often when I was you know hanging out in the temple, where they would use the text to talk about their own relationship to God. Um, all of that went into the. I was hearing all of that as I as I as I translated. So in some ways, the, it was transformative for me because the poem is not was not just a literary object. It had this other life. And as I said, it, because it took so long to do, and I, it's not just because it was 1,102 verses, but that it forced me to be so slow as a translator. Uh, I would work on a single verse for weeks, um, days, um, and I would just, be muttering it like walking down the road. I would just be muttering the verse and thinking about, um, you know, like where to, like a jigsaw puzzle, where do the words go? And that level of, I mean, I've done other translations before, but it never demanded this level of of attention, um, the slowness uh, of uh, the, the kind of, it really slowed me down as a person. Um, and it taught me, to hear text very differently, to listen to text very differently, and to also think about English very differently. Uh, one of the things that I did in this translation, it's although it's in sort of free verse, um, I told myself that there were certain things, like because I couldn't do the Ambadi, it's not possible to replicate that in English. So I suppose that's one thing that is lost. Um, I, told, I set myself some goals, like for instance, I all the decades had to have the same number of lines. So, um, so there was, so if I, if a, if for instance, this one that I just read, it's all couplets. So the entire decad in English is in couplets. If I translated a particular decad, um, I just decided that I wanted to do four lines. Then I had to do every single verse had to have four lines in that decad. So that requires a, a, a kind of discipline because um, it can't be artificial. I can't be just lengthening lines just because I want to fit into this arbitrary thing that I've decided, but it has to make sense. So 
um, it, uh, it forced me to be, a mu- I think it made me a much better translator, a much more thoughtful translator, a much um, slower and patient translator. Um, so yeah, it was very transformative. In, in, and, I, and I'm sure that I'm, I haven't even quite understood all the ways in which it has transformed me. Um, but it still, it definitely has. And I still want to go back and, and work on it, even after all, even though it's all done, I keep thinking about, oh, I want to do that again. I want to go back and redo that verse or redo that section. I'm not happy with it. Um, and so it's, it, it will be something that I think I will live with for my entire life. Um, um, speaking in the sort of slow, uh, deep uh, nature of the, of the translation process, uh, it, it's a classic. This is a classic work. What is a classic work? But a work that is so slow burning because it's speaking to parts of self that don't shift a whole lot, even in this frenetic age of ours. Right, that, that, that it's slow burning. Famous, the sort of phrase I was chatting with someone earlier, um, a client actually, and I, the metaphor came. You know, uh, you know, are you building a tent or are you building a pyramid? Right, building a pyramid. It's 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 majestic to behold. It stands the test of time. My God, you may you know you're putting up a few bricks a day, right? Yeah, absolutely. And sort of, sort of and. It, 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 this is part of uh, Penguin Classic series. It and is, I, and I think it's uh, it's certainly fitting to be part of the Pen- Penguin Classic series. In that, uh, this is really a classic work that is now accessible to English speakers, um, and it, it, the work was undertaken, the translation of the work was undertaken in also the slow, methodical, epic, transformative um, uh, mode whereby, you know, you're, 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 you're sort of having to digest deeply uh, the, the, the verses and the meaning and the texture and, and the experiences and, and the theology and, and the sociology and then having that um, infuse however you decide to ultimately render the verse. I mean, there, there's so much there powering the translation. And it, it bespeaks um, the very depth, I feel, of human experience powering the work. Yeah, it is. It's a remarkable work. And, um, you know, one of the things that we haven't had a chance to um, touch on, and, I, and I, I sort of mentioned it very briefly, but I, I, I do want to... Um, sort of draw people's attention to this is um, that one of the really marvelous things about this work, and it's very common to a lot of Bhakti poets, um, is the use of the female voice. Um, and so he has uh, almost a quarter of the verses of the Thiruvaimari are rendered in the female voice. Uh, the voice of the mother, the voice of the friend, um, you have a few fortune teller here and there, um, and the um, and the heroine whose voice is, is very, very uh, dominant. There's a couple of uh, verses at the very end of the of the Thiruvaimari, which are in the heroine's voice, but those heroines are the gopi girls. And there's actually a pair of them. The first set of them are um, where the, the gopi girl is speaking about the pain of separation in the evening time. And then there's a companion, a compliment to that in the next hundred, where uh, she describes uh, the gopi girl is speaking of the parting that comes at daytime. So she says, don't go Krishna in the morning. She says, don't go Krishna because Kamsa's demons will come and get you. And it's sort of the, it's a, it's a beautiful kind of, um, it's a kind of thoughtfulness of the poet, right? So he sets the the poem in in this imaginal world of Vrindavan with Krishna there, and he speaks in the voice of the gopis and meditates on the uniqueness of and the difference of what separation in the evening means and what the separation that comes in day means. Um, that there that there's, that there's a quality of that separation is is not the same, that there is, there is a difference. They're among my favorite verses in the poem, which is why I mentioned it. Well, I'm very, very glad you did. Um, is there, uh, what are you working on now? 
What's the next page project? What's my next project? Well, there's the um, the festival thing that I'm working on. The the festival is called the Adhyanotsavam, the uh, Festival of Recitation. It's something I've been working on for now almost 10 years. Um, so I'm hoping to finish that uh, project, the field work for it, maybe in the next two or three years, depending. I'm, you know, one doesn't know when, uh, given the current uh, health crisis, one doesn't know when you can actually travel. So uh, it only takes place, it's an annual festival. It takes place only in December, uh, January. It's 21 days uh, long, but the festival associated with the Tirvaimari is the latter half of the festival. Uh, so it's kind of, so I'm hoping to do the last bit of it this December. Hopefully everything goes well and then write that book, but um, uh, which I which um, I don't know what shape that will take. Uh, but uh, but I'm also working uh, on the translation of Kamban Sundarakandam as a part of MCLI, uh, the Multi Classical Library. Uh, it's uh, much longer than this. It's about fifteen hundred verses, and I've only done forty five. So, <laughs> um, so, so have... you you don't collect much dust, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'm very, very slow. I'm extremely slow. So I've done only 45 verses in, I think, about three years of doing it. So. For anyone for anyone that's read Aesop's Fables, or at least the one about the tortoise and the hare, slow and steady wins the race. <laughs> yes. It's about, I, don't know, it's, <laughs> I don't know about any race being won, but I'll definitely get to the finish line. So. It's, it's, the, it's the gourmet meal of a fast food then. It's yeah. quality, right? Exactly. Uh, not quantity. Um, so um, it has been a, a real pleasure uh, speaking with you today. For those of you listening, uh, again, we've been speaking with Dr. Archana Vendrakesa from uh, UC Davis on her uh, extraordinarily uh, beautiful and lucid translation of uh, the profound uh, Tamil poem to uh, the to do violently, I tried. <laughs> you did very well. You did very well. Uh, and the title of the Penguin Classic translation, as you can see from the link, is "Endless Song." It is uh, it is a fitting title indeed, in that uh, both the translation and the themes that in, that it imparts uh, certainly uh, will live up to uh, being a penguin. Penguin classic and stand the test of time, and uh, the, the, the sonality, the the, the flavor, the the, the, the the translation demands to be uttered. It is indeed a song. Thank and you so, so much. Thank you so much, Raj. And uh, would you mind if I ended uh, by just reading uh, a single verse? What better way is there? Why should we talk about uh, the food and not having taste? Yes, please. Um, so anyway, before I do that, uh, I want to just thank you so much for having uh, me and for being such a thoughtful um, interviewer uh, who asked some really wonderful and very interesting questions about not just the work itself, but the process of undertaking it. I really appreciate the time and uh, very much appreciate the opportunity to share um, this this extraordinary poem my hope is that with this translation, that more people will take up the study of Namarvar um, and the Arvars more general, uh, generally, uh, and that uh, this translation is only the first of many more that will, will come. I, I hope that there will be others who come forward and improve them. I know that the, the marvelous Vasudhana Rainan has been working on the translation of the Pirvaimari for, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 I think her whole life, and I'm hoping that one of her one day her translations will see the light of day, as will Frank Clooney, who's worked, who was actually the person who brought me to this project in the first place. And we were supposed to do this together, um, and he's got a translation as well. And I hope that that will also see the light of day um, sometime. And that, like all great works, that the Divine Marie deserves multiple translations, um, so each of them can, in this kaleidoscopic way. Uh, reveal something new and different um, about this remarkable poem and the remarkable poet um, who inspired it. So uh, by way of closing, I just want to read um, one verse um, uh, from the 900, and this is the verse I was just talking about uh, that is from the Decad, uh, spoken by the cowherd maidens uh, in Vrindavan. Um, and this is the 
verse, uh, this is one of the verses where they are uh, speaking about what parting from Krishna means uh, when it is the evening time. So this is just one of the verses. It's from the 900. Uh, this is 995. So 900, ninth decade, fifth verse. The heart is no friend. As evening falls, the cows return, and my cowherd's heart turns to stone. His flute's sweet song cuts deep, and my friends, my dear companions, filled with worry for me, swoon before my eyes. Who is to protect my life? How hard it is to earn his grace. And so you have a taste of this endless song. Um, until next time, keep reading, uh, keep listening and keep reciting aloud. Take care. Thank you so much, Raj.